Ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chicky Fitzgerald. Good afternoon. This is Chicky Fitzgerald, and we have a really curious topic today. Uh, we don't normally talk about technology, although everything we do normally talk about is facilitated by technology. Our guest today is Byron Reese, and we are going to be talking about his most recent book, which is called The Fourth you, Age, and you can go back as Smart Robots, as want, but Conscious our listeners and the like future to hear of humanity. a bit about your backstory, wow. and, and you started sharing a bit of that with me before we got in the air, and then you, you and I well, got I'll a little bit what, waylaid uh, because I you were sharing a bit about North Korea, and my mother was born in North Korea, so let's uh, kind of rewind a little bit. Tell us a little bit about Byron. Well, uh, I'm based out of Austin, Texas, and I'm uh, 51 years old. And so I came out of university really uh, in the 90s when this whole internet thing was um, beginning. And, and I moved to the Bay Area to, to just follow that thread. And I got really interested in technology kind of with a capital T, just what, what, what has it kind of meant for human history? Like what is its philosophical, for lack of a better word, significance. And, and that, you know, that got me just going down that path and thinking about how technology, as far back as language itself, has really shaped us. And then along the way, I got interested in artificial intelligence. And that, you know, we're, we're the top species on this planet, not because we're the strongest or fastest, but because we're the smartest. And if the idea that somehow we're going to build machines that are, in theory, smarter than us, what does that uh, mean for uh, for the for us? And that's kind of how I got started in this. And what really I found curious was how different people's opinions about artificial intelligence were. It, it isn't like, you know, if I said, "When are we going to make it to Mars?" Somebody might say ten years, and somebody might say twenty, and somebody might say thirty. But they're all nobody's going to say, oh, it'll be 10,000 years or we're doing it tomorrow. But with AI, it was a little different than that. You had one whole group of people who are afraid of the technology. You get Elon Musk, who calls it an existential threat. You get uh, the late Stephen Hawking, who said it might be the last thing we're allowed to make. You get Bill Gates saying he's worried about it. And then you get other people who, who find those ideas to be laughable. I mean, and these are people in artificial intelligence and they, you know, Andrew Ng says those are like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. Mark Zuckerberg says those kinds of things are quote, pretty irresponsible and so forth. And that's really what got me curious is like, why did all of these people in tech see this technology so differently? And that's what made me write this book that uh, came out last year. Right. So when we talk about the fourth age, that begs the question, okay, so how are you defining what the first three were? Well, it is a little arbitrary because, <laughs> you know, there was this point in human history about 75,000 years ago that 
genetically, it looks like we were down to about 800 mating pairs of humans. I mean, like we were an endangered species by any definition, and yet somehow we made it here. And I think it's because we learned a trick, and that trick is uh, we learned how to multiply what we're able to do through technology. And it wasn't that it was really a um, kind of a up and to the right smooth line. I think along the way there were these kind of step functions that happened where we um, we, we, we made things that were so profound and significant that they altered the trajectory of humanity forever. <clears throat> and so uh, there were these step functions. And, and again, you can kind of debate about where, what they were. And I, I think the first one was speech, which is our singular ability as a species. I think speech came along and that allowed us to coordinate our actions. Uh, and that was a big deal. And that changed us. And then just about 10,000 years ago, we got agriculture. And I don't actually think agriculture itself was all that profound, but it gave us the city, right? Because we settled down. And, and the city itself isn't that profound, but what the city gave us was the division of labor. And the division of labor, of course, says you specialize and you specialize and I specialize and together we're all better off. And so that's what gave us prosperity. And I think prosperity set because it used to take all of us all of our time to make our food. And then suddenly there was excess. And then I think the third big kind of step function was when we got two technologies at the exact same instant. And it, it was just a big coincidence. 5,000 years ago, we got both writing and the wheel. It just happened to be at the same time. But when you had those two technologies, you had everything you needed for nation states. And that's why if you flip through a history book and look at all the ancient civilizations, Mesopotamia, Mesoamerica, uh, the Po, the Indus, you, you'll see they all began 5,000 years ago when these two technologies happened. And so right. I began to wonder if artificial intelligence and robotics are the, that kind of a step function pair of technologies is going to change us because you know, we use technology to outsource or to expand our own limits. You know, we used fire to pre-digest food to make it easier to digest. We cooked it. We used writing to outsource our memory. Um, right. If all of a sudden we're building machines to outsource human thought, AI, and we're building robots to outsource human action, then what, are, like what, what, what then are we and where are we heading? And so yeah. that was just how I, I thought of it. Of course, a bunch of other authors had the fourth blank and, you know, and they're looking at history through a different lens, but that is, and, and it's a little confusing, but that's just kind of organizationally how I thought of it all. Got it. So, so you, you talk about this as the long, hard road to today. And I actually, I love that because uh, you know, one would take a look back at history, and, and you're right, different people would pull out uh, different step functions that would have caused that change. But I actually love that you, you start this with the story of Prometheus. So why don't you tell us the significance of that as laying out the foundation for, for these different ages, and then we'll move on and talk about really the big questions that come out of all of this. Well, uh, each of the five sections of the book begin with a fictional story that themselves are chronological. 
And so the beginning is the story of Prometheus. And it really is not only about the centrality of fire, because that was, that was the thing Zeus didn't want us to have, but it really is about the centrality of technology to the long arc of human history. And I think it's really fascinating that, um, that as far back as we have stories, nobody knows how far back that goes, but uh, even as an oral tradition, it probably goes back 4,000 years, but that, um, that the earliest stories we have are about technology and our ability to, or our proclivity to misuse it, but also the way it empowers us. So that's the one page story that kind of began, begins the book. Got it, then, got it. And then later, uh, I tell the story of uh, John Henry, who's this uh, steel driving man who one day they get a steam powered steel driving device and, and he competes with it and he barely beats it but dies in the, in the struggle. And that is a story of, of how we feel threatened by the technology that we create and how we feel both empowered by it and how uh, we both feel threatened by it. Um, right. And then I tell the story of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know, the, from Fantasia. It's actually a story that goes back to Goethe. Uh, they just put it in the Sorcerer's Apprentice. But that is a story. You remember Mickey chops up all the brooms. that he, He's animated these brooms to bring in this water. Uh, and they just keep bringing in the water. And he chops right. them all up and then they multiply. And that is another story about our fear that this technology that we create is going to go out of control. Right. And we won't be able to control it. Um, and then I talk about uh, the story of John Froome. And this is uh, about the cargo cults of the Pacific Islands. In World War II, in these Pacific Islands, American forces would land planes, build runways, and then all these planes would land, and they would offload all this cargo. And so then the, the, the local people said, whoa, we want in on that. And so they would try to build uh, runways and they would make radios out of coconuts like on Gilligan's Island and, and they would make uh, airplanes out of bamboo and they wanted the planes to land and bring them cargo. And those are the cargo cults that they still exist today. This belief that someday the cargo is gonna come. And, and this is about technology um, and, and are, are wondering if, if we can build essentially an electronic person. Can you, can you duplicate everything you see about people in machines? And if so, do you get artificial people in one form or another? Or is it just a cargo cult? No planes are ever going to land because there's something <laughs> more going on. And then the final of the five stories I tell is from uh, Star Trek, The Next Generation, where they find uh, some people from the 20th century who are frozen, they thaw them, and one of them is an industrialist who, now that he can't try to accumulate wealth, he's like, what do you do? And Picard says, now the great challenge is to become better people. And, and I, I end on that note, which is that is what I think our great challenge is, is using these technologies we create uh, to become better people. Right, right. Well, you know, it's so funny because as you look back and, and I happen to be in the 
travel technology industry. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't even know that that is an industry, but uh, every piece of, of software that you use to book a hotel room or a car rental or an air ticket has uh, a whole plethora of systems behind it. And the interesting thing is that, um, and you know, you haven't specifically mentioned Watson and IBM's foray into this, but uh, actually right there in, in the Austin area, one of my colleagues who had been the founder of Travelocity uh, actually partnered with IBM and Watson to build uh, an AI driven travel engine. And I had an early discussion with him and I said, it's never going to work because travel as, as a very interesting example is not predictive based on past behavior. Just because I went on a cruise last week doesn't mean when I go online now that that's what I want information about. Right. And he argued with me. And I also said, listen, uh, you know, at least the early versions of artificial intelligence, or, or even if you go all the way back to uh, profiles, right, back in the 70s when we created travel profiles of, you know, how does Byron like to travel? Does he like to stay in Marriott's? Does he like Avis, right? And we created these profiles. But what we forgot is that people are multidimensional and, and that we aren't just one thing, Right. And, and it, you know, I mean, I'm not happy that his business failed, but, you know, they built it up to, I think they probably had a hundred engineers working on the Watson technology and they gave up. They gave up because I, what I had said was actually true. So how do, where does that fit? You know, as we look at artificial intelligence and, and robots, because we aren't just one person. I mean, sitting here, I am, you know, daughter of my mother who grew up in, in North Korea. I am also daughter of my father who grew up in Brazil, right? And each of those things has, has different complexities about how I feel about my role as daughter, right? And then, you know, I'm, I'm sister, I'm wife, I'm mother, I'm, I'm all of those things. And in each of those circumstances, I make different decisions, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, we are certainly um, hard to predict. You know, human behavior is. Uh, that's why things like the Turing test are so difficult. It, it's actually hard to predict what I'm going to say next. Rutabaga. <laughs> see, you didn't see that coming. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I find it helpful, though, when I am thinking about that. Um, Artificial intelligence is kind of an unfortunate term in that it's kind of like the word pool. Pool means two completely different things. It's like it can be a swimming pool or it can be the game pool, and they have nothing to do with each other. And right. unfortunately, artificial intelligence is, is like that. It's used as a term to mean what we might more accurately call artificial general intelligence, like an AI that's as smart and versatile as a human, like what you see in science fiction shows. And that's a technology we don't know how to build. Um, and 
very few people are working on that technology, interestingly. It's probably 20 or 30 teams in the whole world. Uh, I mean, I can probably name half of them. Uh, but then the other one is this artificial narrow intelligence. And that is a completely different thing. It's an AI that does one thing very well. It, it can find spam in your email. It can route you through traffic. Right. And, and that's such a simple technology in that the, the, the philosophy behind it is you take information about the past, you study it, and you look into the future and you make predictions. And so to your point, it only works where the future is like the past. You can build a good AI to spot cats because a cat tomorrow looks exactly like a cat did yesterday. Uh, you may not be able to build one to spot a cell phone, but that's beside the point. But humans um, are very much uh, a lot of human act. So where it works, it works fantastically well. Right. right. I mean, if the future and the past are very similar and you have good data about the past, you can predict the future. It's why, by the way, it works well on games because games are these kind of confined environments. And the way you play chess today and how you play chess 300 years ago uh, is exactly the same. Right. Um, but I've had that experience, which I'm sure everybody has. I was on Amazon and uh, I was buying some printer paper and I saw in the suggested stuff. I could buy a pallet of it. And I thought this was really funny. And I was like, I wonder how much a pallet of paper costs. So I clicked on it. And I looked at it. And, you know, it's this pile of paper the size of my car. Right. And I thought, oh, okay, that's funny. But then for three months, that pallet of paper is following me around the Internet. It's like everywhere I go, the ads are showing me are embedded. And it's like, I don't want a pallet. Of, I didn't even want a pallet of paper then. Or if you're, like, shopping for uh tomato seeds to plant in your garden and then you order some the internet all of a sudden thinks you're just some tomato crazed person and they just start showing you all this tomato stuff and 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 i think that lines up with what you were saying about travel it's like yes i went to bora bora last year but i am contemplating finland this year and right. don't just keep telling me about bora bora so it, Human. No, but not only that, I mean, if you take a look, so I, I did a project, uh, gosh, over a decade ago now with Panasonic. And what I was trying to do is to get them to take the, we had built a, uh, an amazing tool that did multi-day trip planning. And um, amazingly, 10 years later, MapQuest, Google Maps, you know, all of the major mapping companies, none of them still do it, right? We, we built it and, uh, and did very, very well in creating this amazing tool. But we tried to work with Panasonic about embedding it in the in-car, right? The in-dash systems. Because I said, you know, if, if Byron and I both buy a Mercedes, right? Same, same model of Mercedes, when we turn on the car, right? and we say we're hungry, right? We, we want a restaurant recommendation. It's gonna give us both the exact same thing. Now, one could say that you could use artificial intelligence to say, well, no, you know, Byron, he likes Thai and, and sushi and barbecue, right? And Chicky likes, you know, who knows, Korean food, whatever. And, and what I was trying to explain to them is you couldn't actually even do that because if I have got uh, I'm in the car with Byron, or 
I have my kids in the car. All of a sudden, even my choice of food changes situationally, right? And so this is the interesting thing, even about artificial general intelligence. Can you build uh, you know, a computer that can sense who you are right now, right? And, and what I had told them then was all we needed to do is allow someone to identify their basic personas, right? So I am mom, I am wife, I am CEO, I am, I'm these different things that behave differently when I shop, when I eat, when I look for a hotel room, right? And that all I have to do when I turn my car on is to say, okay, I'm here right now as CEO. I'm by myself in the car. So all of the recommendations need to come through that lens, right? But can the car say, ah, who are you today? Like without asking the question, I'd, I, that I don't think we're ever going to get to. Um, that could well be the case. I mean, the, the, the people that I know who are doing a lot of work in AI, I mean, when I call my airline and it says, say your, you know, your frequent flyer number, it still doesn't get the difference between A, H, and 8, right? Like, that's right. really kind of where we're at. And these other things are at this point quite aspirational. I mean, I, it's interesting with general intelligence that I have a podcast about AI and I've had over a hundred guests and they're all practitioners in the field. And I always ask them, do you believe we're going to build one? And 95% literally um, say, of course, but nobody knows how we're going to, build it like that there's a hundred percent agreement on that we don't know how to build one and so yeah. you say well how can they be so confident we're going to build it if we don't know how and the basic the, the underlying assumption is that people are machines so if you're and i always explicitly say do you believe people are machines and they virtually are like uh what else would we be <laughs> um and so a mechanistic view of and, and so therefore it stands to reason if we are machines someday you'll build a mechanical human uh, but if we're machines then we're also at some level predictable um you know wh what are we we are deterministic you know we are acted upon by predictable laws of physics and they may be so complex we cannot master them but in the end you know you stubbing your toe this morning on the bed was an inevitable outcome of the of the big bang that it's a series of events that led and it could have done nothing else. Um, that's a really interesting view of what people are. And I think it's interesting that, that they so overwhelmingly believe that because when I ask general audiences uh, and I give a lot of speeches on this topic, do you believe your machines? I get about 15% who say yes. And I think in the end, when I started this by saying, I wondered what, what these people believed differently in the end i think it boils down to what are we and if you think we're machines and someday we're going to build a mechanical uh person now right but, but let's get back to uh part five of your book the road uh -huh. from here if what we are really about now is becoming better then i i have to ask the question uh, and again, largely we are talking about a, a scientific dialogue, right? So, so where, 
and and this is kind of the the bombshell question i told you i don't create questions for these interviews but where does faith come into this well um of the of the hundred or so people i've asked that question to um are you a machine or no can computers ever be conscious can they it is consciousness or, or the, the fact that we experience the world is that just a mechanistic process. Um, and the only person who kind of explicitly said something along these lines was Esther Dyson. And she said, no machines, words to the effect that no machines cannot be conscious because they do not have souls. Right. And, um, and that in the end uh, is, is what I, I wrote a book where I never tell people what I think. It's not that I'm, hiding my views or anything but they're irrelevant what what i want to do is ask the question do you believe you're a machine and if you do this is what inevitably falls from that and if you don't this and if you don't believe people are machines and no machine will ever do what a person can do and that sends humanity on a trajectory i think in either case the story of humanity is one of scarcity there's never been enough of the good stuff to go around there's never been enough food for everybody never been enough medicine never been enough education never been enough leisure time and so inevitably some people got it and some people didn't and and scarcity that's the num that is the underlying assumption of every economic theory there is. If you're a capitalist or a communist, it all begins with there's only so much stuff and some people aren't going to get it. And I think the reason I'm so optimistic about the future is I think with technology, we have learned to overcome it. We have multiplied human ability to the point that uh, scarcity becomes less and less of an issue. You know, you're your body uses about 100 watts of power, like a bright light bulb. But if you look at the energy consumption in the United States divided by the population, you find you're also consuming 10,000 additional watts of energy. So you have like 100 times what you can do at your disposal. And that's only going to go up. And so I think that that's kind of our overarching story as a species. I don't, I don't work harder than my great grandparents did. <laughs> I think I can say that very confidently, but I live a much more lavish life than they ever aspired to because right. an hour of my labor yields so much more than an hour of theirs did that I don't haul up water from a well. I turn on a tap. Uh, and, and if you just graph that line and you just send it off into, uh, in, into the future, uh, that's why I'm optimistic. I do think that in the end, our challenge is to become better people and technology doesn't directly help with that. <laughs> yeah. One, but, one could definitely argue that it is having the opposite, uh, effect. But hold that thought. I would love to, I would love, I would love to hear wh why you would say that. But what, what I was going to say is that scarcity you know, if you look at some of the most troubled places in the world, they're generally places where there's not enough for everybody. Right. Um, I live on a on a street with people of all different nationalities and 
and of all different faiths and of all different ages, of all different political persuasions. And I've never gone to war with any of them. Um, you know, I wave at everybody as I'm pulling out of my driveway. And, and it's because they're not desperate and I'm not desperate. And so if we could just build a world where there are far fewer desperate people, I think it gives us, it, it like lets the, the pressure off and it, it gives us the ability to be, be better people because we're not desperately trying to survive or, or, or what have you. But why, make your case, uh, I'm curious of, of why you think technology may be making us worse people. Well, I, I think the accessibility uh, and, and worse is, is all, uh, you know, your definition of that, right? So I'll give you just kind of a, a bit of a silly example. So when my husband is out of town um, and we're empty nesters, so, you know, it's just me and the cat, um, I tend to work uh, a lot, right? And so in the evening, I may have, uh, you know, a TV uh, channel on, but I'm really not watching TV. I'm, I usually have my laptop on my lap and I am, I'm doing things, right? And that might be work things. Most of the time it is. Uh, so the other night I connected to someone on LinkedIn who at midnight made me aware of uh, an accelerator opportunity. In fact, I think it was probably out of the Austin area and said, you know, that they were really interested in talking to me. And that's like the worst thing you can say to an entrepreneur who always needs money, right? Uh, and so I went over and I was researching their company and, and uh, they had an application process that you could go through, right? And so I spent two or three hours and, and pretty soon it's almost four in the morning, right? And in, in a world where LinkedIn and my computer weren't ruling me, I would have had a good night's sleep, right? And what ended up happening is the following day, they said, oh, well, let's set up time to talk. And then lo and behold, all they want to do is pitch me on something that was going to cost me $400 a month, right? And may or may not help me. And, and so I think uh, when I take a look at something like uh, even the technology for uh, CRM, right, customer relationship management, which actually has turned into this thing called marketing automation. It's kind of ruined it for the rest of us because now anybody can reach us at any time, uh, you know, through all different kinds of mechanisms. And now if you've got a really good product or service and you really want to talk to someone, and you know exactly who that is and that they can really benefit from what you got, you can't even get through to them. So I, I think that technology, uh, I think we're actually going to have a return to face-to-face. -face. And, and uh, so when you talk in part five of the book about the road from here to where we're going, um, I do agree that it is about making us better people. But I think we were in many cases better off when we were having face-to-face -face conversations with people and being to actually see their reactions, um, you know, versus uh, just all of this electronic stuff that we do. You know, I have a hard time remembering what work was like in the early 90s when uh, I entered the job market and, you know, we didn't have email. And so you would write a letter to somebody and mail it. And then you would wait 
for reply or maybe you or would really leave a message on their answering machine yeah or maybe you would fax them a letter and then you would wait three <laughs> days for a reply and and then you say how did you how did we learn how did we how did we learn about things we needed to understand we went to the library and looked at indexes of periodicals and found magazine articles and pulled them up on microfiche and read them yes, um <laughs> and 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 everything moved at such a slow pace that i would never go back to that world if i could help it um no and but, I, and i would agree the accessibility of information is something i would never want to do do without but the accessibility of people and how abused it is it's it's like when you look at so the mailbox in back and I'm, I'm about 15 years older than you are when i was young the mailbox was an exciting thing because my grandparents lived in um, california at the time they had just moved back from from living in asia pacific and so the mailbox might hold a um, a letter from them right and so it was exciting and then you know as my parents you know got a little bit in debt all of a sudden the mailbox holds bills, right? And, and I would say all the way into probably even the 80s. Like we didn't have junk mail in our mailboxes until, until then, right? I mean, there was probably a little bit of it. But now it has gotten to the point where it's ridiculous. And my husband will say, well, did you go get the mail? Because he travels a lot. And it's like, no, but why would I? There's nothing in there of value. <laughs> Nobody's writing me letters, right? And if there are bills, I don't, I don't need it today, right? And, and electronically, we are at the place where if, if somebody looked at my inbox today, and I keep trying to get on top of it, right, to where I, I'm not letting it get out of hand. Um, but, you know, I've got easily 3,800 uh, emails in my email box today, and I just completely cleaned it out a few weeks ago, right? That's ridiculous. It's really, there aren't that many people who really need to communicate with me. So the communication piece of, of our electronic world is where I think it's terribly broken because anyone is allowed to intrude into our worlds, whether it be texting us or calling us and, and, um, so let, let me get back to kind of the final points of your book when you talk about the road from here. So, and I'm going to read just these last few chapter titles, The Invention of Progress, Life in the Fourth Age, which is where we are, uh, you know, according to your book, Death, Where Is Thy Sting? I want to focus on uh, the next to the last one, which is what can go wrong, right? And what is the fifth age, right? What comes after this? So as, as we wrap up our, our uh, discussion, why don't you focus on what can go wrong? I point out that we are a skittish species that, and I didn't make this up, and I don't know who did, but somebody remarked that it was far better for us back in the day to see a rock and to think it was a bear and run away than it was for us to see a bear and say, ah, it's just a rock and not run away. And so the more skittish you were, uh, the more you saw bears everywhere around you and ran away, the safer you were. And so, you know, we came by that honestly, but I, in that chapter I write about how we're disproportionately afraid of 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 these shapes we can 
only see an outline. And we're like, it could be a bear, it could be a bear, run, run. And so we tend to uh, fear, and I mean, I'm including myself in this, we tend to all fear just instinctively this kind of new stuff. And so you can list out all of these things that could go wrong, all these things in the news you read about and, uh, you know, from uh, a nuclear war to the climate to terrorism to asymmetrical, I mean, just everybody knows the list. Uh, you're reminded of it every, every morning when you open up the news. And what I, what I try to do is to say, all of that pales compared to when we were just 800 mating pairs. You know, one, one disease and we would have been extinct. And we hung by a thread. And, and then we went through all of human history and plagues would just wipe us out or wars would just wipe out huge parts of the population or, and, and you had no medicine and you had no access to information. And, and yet somehow in that world where there was so little, we invented human rights and we invented trial by jury and we invented democracy and we invented individual liberty and self-determination and self-government and the Bill of Rights and, and, and we, you know, and Michelangelo carved the Paeta and, <laughs> and uh, J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter and Lin-Manuel Miranda's wrote Hamilton. And, and somehow we did all of that when everything was against us. And now we're in this world, I think, where we have so much power and, and yet we're still afraid of what the future might hold, you know, we still say, I could be a bear. And so I wrote that chapter to say, sure, a comet could hit the earth and wipe us all out. But aside from that, I think the future I imagine isn't just a possibility. I actually believe it's inevitable. I, 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 I think it is as, as inevitable as the rising of the sun. And then the fifth age, ah, the fifth age. So, I went back and read all these old stories of utopia I could find. And from a lot of them in the 19th century, but they go way back, way back. You know, it's an old term. Um, and they were always full of crazy ideas. They were full of uh, equal rights for men and women, uh, universal education. They were full of um, no monarchies, but people ruled themselves. They were full of um, plenty of food. Uh, they were access, anyway, they were full of all of these ideas that must have seemed crazy at the time. Oh, religious liberty, there was a crazy idea. Uh, and yet our world is achieving them. I mean, there are still places where they, we haven't, but we're all of a sudden um, in, a, in a place where we're, we're achieving what was so outlandish those centuries ago. And so now we imagine different utopias and different things. Like, wouldn't it be great if there were no disease or, or what have you? And then I think we're going to achieve those. And then I think one day we're going to wake up in a world that we can't actually imagine any better or much better, except at the edges. I wish there weren't mosquitoes sort of things. 
Um, oh, I wish there weren't cockroaches. There you go. So maybe that, but <laughs> but in a material way, we're going to wake up in a world where uh, there are no more utopias to to imagine because we've we've built it. Right. And and then I say, what comes next? And then if you look up into the sky, we sure look like we live in a galaxy that's waiting for us to pay it a visit. And so I hope someday there's a billion planets, each with a billion people, where every Leonardo can paint their Mona Lisa, every Marie Curie can discover radium and, and all of the rest. I think that's our destiny. And that to me is, is what the fifth age would be about when we, when we uh, colonize the universe. And then we only have to worry about the cold death of the universe 20 billion years from now or something. Uh, and that, well, I, and I will, sure will tell you, solve that. Uh, the, the interesting thing about that vision of the fifth age is uh, uh, I no longer do consulting, but one of the last consulting engagements I did was to help the folks that run Kennedy Space Center win the contract to continue operating uh, the space center for the next 10 years, right? Uh, even though the space program had already been shut down by that time. And what I found out from that project was how much I loved space. And I, I never realized that. So I think you're right. There's, there's something within us that yearns, right, for that fifth age. And, and we'll find a way clearly to make it happen. Um, I, one of my favorite speakers is a guy named Louis Giglio, who has, has um, created just an amazing set of videos that you can watch on, on YouTube um, about the star factories, right? And how the universe is continually renewing itself, creating new stars, right? And it's just like mind boggling that if we didn't have the Hubble telescope, Right. If somebody hadn't known to build that, we wouldn't even be able to see that that was going on. And, uh, you know, it is absolutely mind blowing stuff. I will tell you, Byron, this has been uh, an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion for me. I, you know, I love the kinds of topics that I normally deal with on, on this show, which is usually leadership and growth and innovation, you know, kind of business topics of, of the world we live in today. But uh, this has stretched me, uh, which is always a good thing on a Friday afternoon. Uh, so thank you so, so much. So Byron, uh, how can people follow you, get in touch with you? Uh, what is the best way to connect with you uh, aside from just buying your book? And, and uh, again, we've been talking with Byron Reese, who wrote the book, The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. So Byron, how can folks reach you? I am the easiest person to find. I'm ByronReese.com. I'm Byron Reese on Twitter. Uh, just type my name into the search engine of choice and, and you'll have, uh, I'm Byron Reese on LinkedIn. Uh, the advantage of getting, getting your name early on all these platforms. See, well, I've had the best time too. If, if I would love to continue the conversation. If oh, I you would. ever have too. another Friday afternoon, you want to uh, chat about this stuff, I'm always available. It has just been uh, one of the uh, most fascinating shows I've had in a very long time. So thank you for being my first show of 2020. 
and uh, looking forward to continuing the discussion. I am as well. Thank you. All right, Byron. Take care. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business.